0: It's good to be here this morning. Um, it's, it's good to, to meet you this fun first Sunday of the year. If we've not yet met, my name is Skylar Adams. I am the RUF campus minister at East Carolina University. And my wife and our two girls, we've been in Greenville for actually a year today, or this week, effectively. So we've been honored to be a part of you. was oh, sweet. Um, I should be clapping for you. Uh, so uh, thankful for you all, and, and certainly thankful uh, for your leadership and love in our life. Um, so I'm excited to share with you this morning, and I hope uh, you'll be encouraged. And uh, yeah, so let's, uh, let's turn our attention there. You're welcome to, to turn with me um, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to say a few things that might take a handful of minutes before we get there, uh, but when we, when we get there, you'll be ready. So feel free to, to turn in your scriptures there. Um, If I had a title for this message, it would be Sovereign Suffering. (laughs) Who's excited? (laughs) I'll begin by saying this. Um, We are hell-bent to make our lives easy, to make them comfortable, to make them safe, to make them enjoyable, to make them productive, to make them easy. In fact, really all of life uh, if it could be put on a uh, you know a graph would 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 just start at zero zero on the axis and see how far and high it could end right this is how we live this is no matter who you are no matter what faith you profess no matter what relationship you have to any organized religion or spirituality this is just baked into us maybe you felt it this week we want life to be free from discomfort and pain. Now, I want to share with you something that I enjoy that, that I don't know what it's going to say about me, but we don't have cable like most Americans, I guess, at this point. But when I travel or like I'm away for work or we're out of town and the TV evident, uh, you know, have cable television, I always tune in to which station you don't know. The Christian Networks. I love, maybe, listening to these TV televangelists. I've listened to so many, Stephen Furtick, uh, Marcus Lamb, Joel Osteen, uh, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes. I I listen to these guys. Well, sort of. And um, I just find myself constantly drawn, like, how do they gather so many people? Like, what is it that is so compelling about their message? Like, why are people finding what they say so appealing? Because I hope that they and, and many voices within our culture um, say many true things, right? Common grace. And yet, they veer off. Many messages in our culture veer off in a subtle, appealing, and ultimately dangerous way. Can you guess where I'm going? Pain, job loss, financial, relational, emotional, and psychological Loss and insecurity are all setbacks. They're to be avoided. They're bumps in the road. You see, God's plan is to make you powerful, beautiful, and free. You see, God has not intended for you to suffer, so these voices say. In fact, that worldview has a picture of two parallel universes. You've got God on the left-hand track and yourself on the other. This worldview is an ancient cousin to the gospel. The Corinthian church had a minority within it that were increasingly convinced that the setbacks, the failures, and the disappointments, the limited, disorganized, simpleton ministry of Paul disqualified him. In fact, they argued that he had suffered too much to be a spirit-filled apostle, of the risen Christ. Let's hear how he responds. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Notice he just said the same thing twice. Verse 12. So death is at work in us but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, quote, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, good joke, Paul, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Lord, convince us that this is true. Bring us over into the light of your Son. Spirit, help us to see him. Enable us to find him lovely, attractive, our Savior. Help us to see him more powerfully than we ever have. Help us to actually be convinced that your words come from your mouth, that our life can be fully set on them. Give us this hope. I guess what I'm asking, Lord, is that you'd be at work as you promised to be in your word for your people. All for Jesus. Amen. So Paul wrote uh, the second letter uh, to the Corinthian church, Uh, From Macedonia, he had just finished his missionary journey about three years in Ephesus, and he was effectively on his way back in some ways around year 55 or 56, and this was about a year after he wrote the first letter to them, and Paul evidently wrote four, two of which we don't have, and this is the fourth letter that he had written to the church, and he had planted it sometime around 49 to 51, so we've got, you know, maybe a six-year-old church plant, and there's some divisions growing There's a minority of of, of, of followers, of people within this church that are uh, following these, quote, peddlers, as Paul refers to them in chapter 2. He would later refer to them as, quote, super apostles in chapter 11. Like I said, they became convinced that the things that looked like failure to these people made them think that he was not worth listening to. So he writes in this setting His heart is just vexed that so many people are walking away from the gospel or being tempted by this cousin gospel version worldview. And he writes to vindicate his ministry in order to strengthen and encourage the faithful in Corinth and to encourage them to offer this rebellious remnant within them another chance to repent. This is why he's writing. You see, What I want us to see this morning, and we're going to hopefully work through this, uh, hopefully quickly without being too belabored, but the point is, is this. Suffering is God's providence. Suffering is God's providence. He owns it, he governs it, and he restores the world through it. Notice I didn't say he, he created it, but it must work for God. Therefore, it is God's providence as we stand on this side of the empty grave and before the consummation, that all evil, all of it would work and be under the providential hand of our God. Suffering is God's providence in my life, Scholar. So as we think about what does this mean as we try to tease this out, look back at verse 7. Why would God put something so precious and something so fragile? My wife and the girls made some homemade ornaments for a number of people in our family, and those guys are super delicate. I've already super glued one back together. And we were willing to spend another $5 to wrap these things. We were going to take every precaution to make sure they landed in the mailboxes that we wanted. That's a silly example. But do you get the question? Do you feel the weight of that question? Why would God put something so precious in something so fragile? And verse 7 tells us to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Four quick things about this verse. First, this verse assumes that the jar of clay will give way. Exposing the treasure inside to threat. It assumes that. And this is by design. Okay? God didn't wrap his clay treasure in bubble wrap. He put it in an exposed vessel. Two, Paul uses the expression surpassing power to affirm that there is a lesser power in our pain. You can't have a comparative statement if something isn't true of the other thing, right? Like it's either no power and power or a little power and a lot of power. Which is to say, there is hurt in your pain and suffering. It actually hurts you. It's real. It makes you angry and it makes you cry. Three, while the surpassing power affirms of the pain of our suffering, Somehow, mysteriously, God's power is more real. Like it's the real thing. It's as if like your your pain is a mirage of what is truly there. The surpassing power that belongs to God is more real than the deepest ache of your pain. The deepest agony that you've ever tasted is actually weaker than his power. That's hard to believe. Do you? It's worth thinking about. Fourth and finally, notice this more real, capable of actual change power. We're still in verse 7. Quote, belongs to him and not to us. Did you catch the same verb in our Confession of faith, God owns it, and thus our pain. It works for him. Suffering works for God. It can't outsmart him. It can't outwit him. It can't outgun him. It cannot outdo him. It is subject to him. Suffering is God's providence. And we see that right away in verse 7, because he owns it. We continue into verse 8 and 9, and we see, like, perhaps one of the most, like, rhetorically beautiful sections of Scripture ever written, right? I mean, it's obvious the Spirit is at work in Paul's writing. Have you ever written anything that sounded remotely coherent, like, five years later? This, for thousands of years, has, has just awestruck believers and non- This little section of the way that Paul holds together, and we can't really appreciate it, but we've done the best we can in our English translation. He sets up these four separate sort of antithetical uh, realities of suffering, right? Afflicted, not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In all of these scenarios... The point that Paul is making is that the worst has not happened to him. Let me remind you, by the way, the thing that the Corinthians are claiming disqualifies Paul is the very thing that he's using to vindicate his ministry. Paul, where are you going? You see, it is not accidental, but by God's design. He governs, He guides, He subdues, He organizes our pain. As soon as the jar of clay, which is Paul, and then to us, is afflicted, God's a super, super, surpassing power keeps it from being crushed. And on and on it goes. What is true of this little, uh, four little antitheses um, is that they get increasingly worse, right? They just continue to get worse and worse and worse. It's like John, or it's like Paul's version of Joseph in Genesis 15. What you meant for evil, brothers, God meant for good. It is subject to him. Let it look like the worst is happening and see what I will do. Evil is accountable and it is subject to God, it's governed by him. See, in verse 7, we're told that he is over it. Like, he made this choice that seems absolutely ridiculous. The message of the gospel, this treasure, Christ is Lord, is the way that Paul refers to it earlier in verse, or chapter 4. That he would put it in this fragile, like breakable, um, entirely not sturdy, in the, you know, covering is actually by design and is a gift of God. He owns it. He governs it. And then finally, He restores it. But before we get there, I want to stop for just a moment and say, what this passage is not saying is that God punishes you in Christ. Is that He's somehow like, uh, He's trying to teach you a lesson in, 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 in this suffering. Right? We can often think about you know, we, we get nervous thinking about what God's relationship is to evil and suffering because we can't fully explain it. We know that we're the, we're the reason for it, yet we don't always know God's relationship with it. So as I mentioned at the top of this, of, the, of this message, like many people just say, you know what, there's just two realities going on. There's man's and there's God's. And he doesn't really intervene. He doesn't want you to hurt. So he just kind of cheers you on and hopes the best for you. But we must see. Just as the tempter shows up to the throne of God in Job. He can't operate without God being in control of it. One of the greatest themes of Hebrew scripture is that God identifies with the suffering. Throughout God says, if you oppress the poor, you oppress me. I am a husband to the widow. I'm a father to the fatherless. I didn't put an R in that. It sounded funny. Fatherless. God binds up his heart so closely with suffering people that he interprets any move against them as a move against himself. This is powerful stuff. But Paul's ministry and the message of the gospel go beyond that. You see, Christians believe that in Jesus, God's own son, divinity became vulnerable and got involved with suffering and death. He didn't come as a general or an emperor, but a carpenter. He was born to plain and poor parents and lived in an obscure, forgotten town. But we don't admire him for his humble pie. No, the wonder is the cross. On the cross, we sufferers finally see to our shock that God now knows what it is to lose a loved one to an unjust attack of pain and suffering. You know, Jesus came... The eternal begotten Son of God came as his suffering servant. So you see what this means. John Stott said, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Please resonate with that. Yes, we don't know the reasons that God allows such evil to happen in our lives and to continue, but we know what reason it isn't. What it can't be. Christ says, it can't be that he doesn't love you. It cannot be that he doesn't care. God so loved and hates loves you and hates suffering, that he was willing to come down and get involved in it. He let it get on him. He let it get in him. And he let it take him over. The cross is an incredible hint of God's providence and suffering. Any other message is contrary to the gospel. The antithesis that Paul sets up that he is being preserved from find their full effect in Christ. He's completely worn down, beaten, accused, and killed. He is unjustly crushed. He is pushed to despairing. He is forsaken relationally and he is destroyed. I'll never forget when my one of my professors at covenant. He was so undone on one lecture by the reality that the God-man would die and the world didn't cease. And it's just burned in my brain. This man, of like, I've never seen emotion in my life from him. And he just begins to weep. It cannot be that our God does not love us, okay? It can't be that he's not there, and it can't be that he doesn't with us. And this is what gets us to verses 10 through 12. This is how Paul is able to begin to communicate to these Corinthians that suffering is redemptive. It is actually the stuff that God is using to bring about his ultimate purpose in the world. You see, if if we just ended there, it's powerful on its own. We're left with an inspiration of Paul. And while Paul says, imitate me, he never says, follow me. He says, follow Christ. So you look at verses 10 through 12. We're carrying around this body of death. Okay, that's gross. What? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then he kind of rephrases it in a different way. We're being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see how it's actually being used? In other words, Paul is saying, when you see me suffer, you're getting to see Jesus. Paul's saying the more I take him in and his gospel, the more it actually looks like death to those that don't know him. In verse 3, he refers to these people as those who are perishing. The people within the Corinthian church who, as he describes it, have a veil over their eyes. What looks like weakness to them is actually his deepest and surest strength. But you see, God actually bears witness to his matchless son through your pain, not through your wins. You will not hear that on some SBN or whatever the Joel Osteen. I don't know. I probably shouldn't point fingers. Forgive me for that. What is your deepest pain? That's a huge question to land sort of arbitrarily in this. Have you ever been slandered? Has your reputation ever been abused? Have you ever been stolen from? Has anyone forged your signature and taken money? Has anyone said something about you that isn't true and you've never been able to talk to them since? Have any of you wanted children and you just can't seem to get pregnant? How many of you have lost a job? Or not been promoted, or other people have constantly been promoted around you? Has a friend betrayed you? Do you find it hard to trust people as a result of that? Do you walk around with deep and chronic pain? Do you have adult kids who don't really like what you believe, think you're crazy? What is the deepest hurt that you've experienced? I don't ask you that to navel gaze. To simply sit there, but rather to help, you help us see that it is, in fact, through this space, according to Paul, this is how he is bearing witness to the Corinthians, that the gospel is true. Y'all, this makes no sense apart from Christ. Paul gets to a point, he's just exasperated and he, with the Corinthians, and he just goes on to describe all the things that have happened to him. And then he goes on to say, look, I'm just like these super apostles too if you want to take that road. The thing that we think is what he doesn't want from us is precisely the thing through which he actually brings life in our hearts. Not one moment of patient pain is wasted, says one pastor. Do you see how incredibly appealing it is to then cozy up to people who, who try to dismiss that? They try to work themselves around it. I think one of the reasons I, I wanted to preach on this is because, I, this, this might sound morbid. I, I don't know what this is going to sound like, but I just I want to be able to accept suffering. I, I don't want it. I want students that I encounter with, with their broken hearts and dreams that, that I wouldn't try to fix them. I want my kids to see that the deepest joy I have in life, as Blank said, is Christ. Our pain actually is used of God. Don't get me wrong. He does not like evil. He does not he hates it. But he's so big. He flexed so hard on the cross. He said this even works for me. And this is where he begins to restore it. So suffering is God's providence. As he shows us in verse 7 that he is over it. It was his plan to look weak, to carry his message of hope in weak people, to actually bring hope through someone who made himself weak. And not only that, but he governs it. Paul lifted the hood a little bit and said, look, this is how this works. We're preserved from the worst things that we can make happen to ourselves. We're subdued from our worst version of ourselves, as you may have heard. And finally, we, we experience and we wait for restoration. We don't lose heart because our pain is going somewhere. Verse 16 and 17. Do you see that? All of this, Paul says, he actually begins verse four or chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Now you know that the ministry Paul's talking about is the ministry of pain. For the sake of Jesus, we don't lose heart. And then he says it again. Verse 16, so we don't lose heart. Don't lose heart that your God is good. That he is not a narcissist. That he is not here trying to wag his finger and beat you down. No. No. The second person of the Trinity actually took on the evil, and he used it for redemption. We don't lose heart because our pain is actually going somewhere. This thing that you and I are so desperate to avoid, so intent to work against, right, is the place where our deepest need begins to come true. Renewal. God is using it to actually renew us, verse 16. These light afflictions, Paul says, are, quote, preparing us, verse 17, How is he doing this? He's making us heavier. Have you ever met a weighty person? It's kind of one of those things like, I I don't know how to describe it, but I know what it is. He's making us heavier. By connecting, verse 18, the mere shadows, the dull reflections, or even faint portals of glory to the true weight of glory. That's how he's doing it. You see, so much of our sin is settling. Does that make sense? Like, what he's saying, look, you look at transient things and you think there's a great glory in those things. Right? Tom Brady famously said, the dude is handsome and can throw a football. Okay, he's got a great life, right? But he said, after he had won like three Super Bowls, with New England, the the, the sportscaster asked, well, is this your best one? And and his only response was no, the next one. For those of us in Christ, we see the glories of this world as, as places that we're supposed to connect to the glory that God has for us in his son, Jesus. Right, we often think about our sin struggles as something to sort of cut off, like we're dismembering our bodies. But in reality, so much of our sin is just wanting too little. Lewis said in his famous sermon, Weight of Glory, delivered i think in 1941 our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child he wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are too far easily pleased do you know this weight of glory? Have you met Him? The true final weight of glory. His weight, Christ's breast, was stripped for you. He exchanged His glory for your jar of clay so that you could experience the glorious weight of your Father's pleasure over Him. Did you get that? I have a pastor who's... Suffering, a friend who's suffering. He works for Surge and he's out in London and they found a brain tumor. He's my age. And this year, I guess yesterday was, yeah, yesterday, he put on Facebook, he wrote, maybe Jesus will come back this year. Jonathan wants glory. You see, when we begin to to connect, when God begins to connect for us, Those things that are fun in and of themselves, but disconnected from the truest fun, if I can put it that way, in Christ. And we begin to long for, and our hearts become gripped by a weight of glory that is beautiful. Jesus never settled for weak desire. He wanted what he chose to let go of. And therefore he achieved perfect obedience, pure desire, Righteousness. He wanted heaven to meet earth. And he exchanged what he had so that we might gain what he lost. He exchanged the ultimate results of our pain with pure, unadulterated weight of glory. One simple image of weight of glory I think about is the movie Twister. You know Twister? What was this 25 years old now? Maybe more. You know when they tie their belt around that pipe? That's a weight of glory. I'm supposed to make it funny, but... <laughs> but it's a serious image. Our life in Christ, He is the anchor of the universe. And He has exchanged the glory that was all His for our earthen pots. So that we might become and receive and experience the weight of glory that we don't deserve, but are given abundantly, Christ. So we don't ask for suffering. Please do not leave here. Don't ask for that. You don't need a wish for it. You don't need to want and, and sort of be self-righteous in it. But the invitation to the Corinthians is that we welcome it. Not because we like it, but because we know our God is sovereign in it. We receive it. We have this treasure in jars of clay, a.k.a. Christ hides himself in you, in you, it's like God's plan of redemption is the ultimate booby trap. You think you're about to take over the city. He wants you to come. Check this out. We're weak and ready for you so his son can be seen, received, and rescued. What would it be like? When our nerves are more sensitive than they've ever been. Can you imagine what we will feel? What will it be like when we can communicate emotion properly? What will it be like when our minds are so sharp? We can think the purest thoughts. We can understand God better than we ever have. What will it be like when blood and energy flow through our bodies perfectly? What will it be like when we don't need a cup of coffee or tin to move This is resurrection and renewal hope. It is not the absence or subtraction of evil only, but the presence of good, the addition of love, the truest form of life is brought in. This is the weight of glory held out for us. The true Son of the world, Jesus, has achieved it by losing it and being raised to life in it. It's the final act of God's providence and suffering. Do you want a New Year's resolution this year? Become heavier. Amen.